listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for a brand new episode. Uh, this time around, as you can see, we're talking with Danny Vaughn from Taiketo. Uh, Taiketo's always been a favorite of mine, and uh, Danny's the lead singer of the band, and we got some great insight on the uh, the early days of Taiketo uh, right up to current. The band's got some dates coming up this year in Europe and, uh, and some other places, so we're going to talk all about that. And uh, we also touch on the time that Danny spent with the band Wasted. Uh, of course, Pete Way and Paul Chapman from UFO fame. And uh, we talk about his time in that band and... Uh, just it was a really good, relaxed, great conversation. Uh, we hope you guys enjoy this one. So let's get right to this interview with Danny Vaughn from Taiketo. Hey, Danny, thanks for joining us here on the podcast today. My pleasure. Good to be here. Good to talk with some fellow some fellow Jersey boys. That's right. That's right. I, I got to tell you, I, I drive down to Tom's to do our podcast recording uh, every week, and I, I drive by Bourbon Street. Uh, you know, from oh, the yeah. uh, from the song there, from the debut album, you know. So I, I always sing it to myself, you know. Still there, still thriving. It is, yeah. Appears to be. That, that song was supposed to be called Bourbon Street, um, and John Kaladner just for whatever reason hates everything having to do with New Orleans. So he was just like, "You're not calling it that. You're calling it something else." <laughs> really, really. So. It became lay your body down instead. Maybe it's a good call. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's kind of like a, an under under the covers, uh, pardon the pun, joke because people, if, if you're from this area, you know what you're talking about. Oh yeah, for sure. And I'm happy to say that there was there was a period after the album came out where we got to go in there and actually heard the song played, and that's you know, that's real good. <laughs> that was success for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I used to go to, I, I got going back with Taiketo. I, I saw you guys probably starting around, I'm a little late to the game, actually 1989. Um, I know you were around a little bit before that, but uh, I mean, I, I've seen so many shows around New York, New Jersey, uh, you know, from the Ritz to uh, all over Jersey, you have Studio One, uh, Birchill, and everywhere in between. As far as Taiketo's concerned, you pretty much started from from zero then. I think I saw you guys in, it was December of 89. Uh, I want to say, did you guys open for Warrant at the Ritz, was it? Or was it? I'm going to say Danger, Danger. Danger, Danger. Okay. That may have been our album release show. We played the Ritz twice, and I can't remember what what the other circumstance was. Well, I think I saw you guys. No, actually, so I, I did see you guys at the Ritz with an album release show. Um, a Jersey band, American Angel, I think, opened up for you, if I recall. Yeah, that'd be right. By the way, I appreciate appreciate the shirt I, I should mention I'm, and it's an original if you go on ebay they're loaded with bootlegs yeah there's a guy there's a guy in bulgaria that's selling them on bootlegs there but he, cheap, he cheaped out he didn't put the tour dates on the back so right. he just put the logo in the front so you, you could differentiate what's a real one like this as opposed to the knockoffs but I, I wanted to start with this album because that was my first introduction to you i had tickets for the 
Iron Maiden show at the Garden in um, the Somewhere in Time tour. And I was at that show, and uh, I was a big UFO fan. I was not a big Wasted fan because I did not really care for the previous incarnation of Wasted until I saw you singing, and that was my introduction, that there's a new singer, and the, the sound sounds totally better and different. How did you get hooked up uh, with uh, Pete Way and Chapman and those guys? Well, how do I tell that in a, in a short way? Um yeah, it's funny. First of all, I, I do want to say that there seems to be a, a, a schism right down the middle of, you know, and I don't know why people have to choose sides, but the people who like Wasted before me, people like Wasted after me. Um, as it happens, the previous singer, Finn, is is a good friend of mine. And um, I love both of it, you know. Um, what had happened was, though, that they were getting... They were getting bigger. They were getting, they were making noise. They were on Music for Nations, which was a great label in Europe. And they got to the point where Pete was faced with a decision about the potential of, you know, going into like a Billboard Top 200 band. You know, MTV was still very new, you know, like getting, taking advantage of all of that. And all the record execs, as they all do, you know, they all gathered around with their opinions and they were all like, this singer's too rough. You know, it's it's too down and dirty rock and roll, which is so funny because, I don't know, what, three years later, you know, we had Guns N' Roses and then everybody wanted that, you know. So, but at that time, everybody wanted Steve Perry, you know, that, that was, so they were like, we could see Wasted going, but we need him with another singer. So I had um met paul chapman when he was living in florida he had heard about me and the cover band that i was in in, in the tri-state area called allied forces and basically the long the short of the story is that he found a way to get in touch with me and i went down there and recorded a demo with his solo band um so the the deal was that paul was now going to go back to the uk and go right to EMI Records, you know, he knew everybody there, and he's, he's like, we're going to get a deal, it's like, done, you know, I'm the guitar player from UFO, this is going to happen, so we're all like, wow, you know, it was all American kids, you know, going, this is great, we're going to we're gonna be on, a, you know, an album, and instead of going to EMI and getting a record deal, he went to a bar, met Pete Way, and joined Wasted instead, so, <laughs> <laughs> we, we never heard from him after that, and it was then, oh, I don't know, I guess a year later, he gets back in touch and says, listen, things aren't working out with Finn so well. He said, what would you think about coming over, rehearsing with us for like three days, and then going doing this this festival in a stadium in Israel? Uh, okay. <laughs> sure. Whatever. I was working for the phone company. I was like, yeah, I'll go. So, uh and, you know, half the set was UFO songs, which I knew anyway. So it was just it was a blast all the way through. And it was kind of like they, they literally said, if this show goes well, we'll probably get you in the band. And that's what it was. So the next morning it was a it was in Tel Aviv. It was in Ramat Gan Stadium. And it was a three day festival. Crazy bill. I mean, like no sense whatsoever. Marillion was the headliner because Kaylee was number one all over Europe and the world. Climax Blues Band, Al Dimiola, uh, Joan Jett was supposed to play, but she backed out. Um, it just, it was like, and it was a lot of jazz cats because it was a jazz festival in town. 
So it was all these different bands going on. We were the only hard rock band. And so the next morning after the party, um, a keyboard player walked in and threw the local newspaper on the bed. He said, I guess you're in. And this is my picture is the only picture for the whole festival. Like, really? Me in my embarrassing Freddie Mercury outfit, doing, <laughs> yeah, you know, all that. And it was just, that was it. So how was the writing process on that, that album? Did they allow you, did you participate? Because the songs on that are, are just to me legendary. It's still one of my favorite albums of, of that era. Um, for the most part, unfortunately, if you read the credits, you don't see my name. Right. That's why I asked, because I had a feeling you had a hand in it more than you were given credit for. Yeah, it was my Spinal Tap moment when the album arrived. We were we were starting the European tour, opening up for um, Status Quo. We were in Norway. And it's like, the album's here. You know, Box came out. And we're like, oh, this is great. And it took me about 10 minutes. And I started reading the back. I'm like, all songs, Chapman Way. I'm like, hang on. Yeah, what? You know, you guys didn't write a fucking word. What are you talking about? <laughs> Music's yours, but. So I went to the manager who was just honestly the nastiest piece of shit human being I've ever met. And he just looked at me and says, tell you what, go home. We'll cancel the tour. We don't care. He, he bluffed me basically. And, and that was it. And I just folded, you know, wow. I should have, I should have stood my ground and I didn't. Um, so yeah, I was, I was paid to write with them, but I of course never got any songwriting royalties. So I'd say three quarters of that album was written in Copenhagen with uh, I stayed with Pete and his girlfriend at the time. Uh, she was Danish and it would start something like this. Pete would come in around noonish and he'd have a bass and he'd go, I got this thing. And he wants to go. Walls fall down. It's like, okay, right. Do something with that. And he'd go out. <laughs> and I'd spend all day at the apartment Well, he and his girlfriend would go out and get pissed all day. And I'd kind of structure something. Eventually we took all those kind of half ideas and all that to Paul, who of course played them properly like a guitar player and, you know, turned it in, turned it more into stronger songs. One song on the album so long was actually off of the, uh, Paul's solo demo that we did together. And he and I co-wrote that together. And it was always very painful because, you know, let's face it, Pete Way's memory is not good, never was. Um, his autobiography is absolutely filled with errors. We just spoke about that with Neil Codd. And if you watch the pod, it's hysterical because he, he said in the podcast that Neil used to run around as a cross-dresser. And Neil <laughs> said, you know what, I'm gay. I'll admit to that. He goes, but I never cross-dressed. <laughs> I didn't even know he was gay. Neil was a school teacher at one point. I mean, you know. Yeah, but there was all kinds of all kinds of just you know bad memory stuff or stuff he made up or whatever else, and um, so you know he always just denied I had anything to do with it, and, and it just blew my mind. Even Paul wouldn't. Paul was like, yeah, he, he was there, he wrote it, he should you know he should be getting something. So it was you know Pete and I only spoke a couple of times after that, and uh, I was really that. It was such a shame. Well, I kind of figured that was the case because Pete Way wasn't a big writer in UFO. So um, I, I kind of didn't think he wrote all those great songs on that Wasted album. Yeah. Like I said, he was he was really good at like, he just, he could generate the vibe, you know, like walls fall down. He just, he'd sit there and chug on the bass and go, this is, 
you, you feel it. It's like, dun, 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 dun. I was like, okay, all right, I get that. Um, what was the other one? Uh, we started writing about Bon Scott. Um, oh, Heroes Die Young. Oh, that's a great song, yeah. You know, he, he, he came in, he started talking about it. He said, I want it. So he gave me an idea. He said, you know, he, he was with Bon Scott the night Bon died. They were like best friends. And so he said, I want to write something like that about him, you know, kind of a rebel dying young and all that. So, you know, I kind of created, it's more, you know, it's, it's more of a, a fantasy thing once the lyrics are all done, but yeah, he, he would kind of give me that, that first sort of start. And then I would, I would flesh it out, you know, and turn it into a song as best I could. I mean, I was pretty new at it at the time. And then Paul would come along and, you know, and add, add the real, you know, real flash and good stuff to it. And how was it being on the road with Iron Maiden? What kind of an experience was that for you as a, as a young upstart musician? It, it was ec- ecstatic. You, you couldn't hope for a better band to be opening for. Um, if there was any downside to opening for Iron Maiden, it was only that in some places their fans don't want to see anyone but Iron Maiden. The Madison Square Garden was one of them because I distinctly remember. It was tough. It was tough. And, and you just, you kind of, you know, obviously you pushed through, you, you, you saw through it all. But as far as working with the guys, as far as, you know, they couldn't be kind enough. They couldn't give you enough. Their, their attitude, unlike so many bands out there specifically at the time was always, if the opening band gets them pumped up, then we go over even better as opposed to opening for status quo. Who's, modus operandi was make them sound as shitty as possible so we look great <laughs> you know it was an awful tour working with those guys terrible well huge difference in two bands too i mean i and maiden were really you know the epitome and status quo i mean not, not a not a big personal favorite of mine no mine either and the funny thing is though in america status quo was nothing but in europe yeah i know they always had a big following in europe yeah, enormous. You know, you know, um, uh, arena selling band. You know, which is weird because like most people in America, are like who? But on the other side, you go to England and talk about Grand Funk Railroad, and they're like, who? That, that's yeah. exactly right. Grand yeah. Funk Railroad is the reason we didn't have status quo because we had those guys, Absolutely. and they were ten times better. <laughs> those guys sold out Shea Stadium. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, those. Are, that's one of my. That's one of my bands. Like, Me too. My top. Me too. Top five. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could talk about, I could have a whole podcast with you talking about Grand Funk alone. I, it's funny. I, I did a podcast with a guy and he kind of, he did a little bit of a left turn. He says, sometimes we do just regular interviews. Says, but if you want, he said, pick a band, give me 10 songs and give me a little story about each one and, and what it means to you or why you're picking. And I went with Grand Funk Railroad. He's like, wow, nobody's gone with that. I was like, these guys are these guys are the reason Van Halen exists. You know, if you look at the videos that you can still find on YouTube of the live at Japan stuff, that's what a rock band's supposed to be, man. He was the epitome of a frontman, and he, and he still this day doesn't get the just desserts that a Robert Plant gets and other guys get. Both those guys, Brewer too. What a voice, you know. That the two of them together. You know, and, and they they were so ridiculously tight because they never stopped touring, you know. And so all their new songs were always being worked out and all that. They were rock solid. 
And I just, I had this wonderful, I've actually got it right here on my computer. I got this wonderful payback for that. I did this whole podcast with this guy talking all about Grand Funk and pumping it up and pumping it up. And he, he calls me about three months later and goes, you know, I kept thinking about that. And he said, I said, why not? I, I reached out to see if I could get in touch with Mark Farner. And he said, yes. And he did the show. Oh, that's great. Wow. You know, and he, right in the middle of the show, he says, I'm talking to him. And I mentioned you. Oh, I mentioned that we did this whole show. And, he's, and I've got it. Mark Farner going, really? This is, so who's this guy that was all about? Grand Funk Railroad? Or Danny Vaughn from Taiketo. He goes, well, God bless. You know, I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Scored points with Mark Farner. You can't get better than that. And, and appeared in a video with him in the same year because it was the, the it was during the beginning of covid i did one of those composite things with everybody with with kip winger um for uh better days coming and i had no idea who he asked he had so many people on that thing it was amazing but for a minute really a second there's me and mark farner on the screen together i was like oh this is just too good <laughs> What would you be your your favorite Grand Funk Studio album if if you had to pick one? Favorite mm, studio album. That's it's funny because my favorite isn't a studio album. It's the Double Live. Double Live, yeah. With there's just everything to love about that album. Um, man, I have so many over there, so that'd be a tough choice. Um, All the girls in the world beware has got a, a kind of a sweet spot in my heart because it, I just, me and a buddy kind of discovered that album together and we just listened to it relentlessly all the time. Yeah. Mine was survival. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, and probably after that, I would I mean, say shining on is so good. Shining on is, is, is real Phoenix. I always like Phoenix and I know Phoenix is, was met like kind of would like mixed results at the time. Yeah. I, I, there was a lot of, a lot of great keyboard work in the in phoenix that was like i i liked them even better as a four-piece when they brought in oh Craig, absolutely Craig Craig, Frost. Craig Frost. brilliant absolutely brilliant and that's why i love the live stuff too because he's, he's providing all that good backup with you know it made the sound very very lush did you get to see them when they did the return in 95 yeah i saw them in the theater with my friend and it was either 95 or 96 they were phenomenal was that with mark yes wow because I know other than that, they, they never play with them. Yeah, that was that one tour. It was all four of them. And I think it was 96. It was, um, right. I saw that. I want to say the Count Basie Theater, but I'm not 100 specific. It was in Jersey. Right. But all right, we'll leave the Grand Funk from there. <laughs> well, well, Danny, who talk about, you were talking about these these bands that were influences here. Um, vocally, who who would you say influences? But You know, Mark Farner or who else would you say? There are so many and, and they might not be obvious. You know, um, as far as why they're an influence, it isn't always about trying to copy a style. I mean, um, you know, I grew up listening to Stevie Wonder and Simon and Garfunkel, uh, the Beatles, of course. You know, um, one of the people that influenced me a great deal as far as that's what I want to do for a living. You know, like watching somebody saying that was uh, Ricky Medlock with when I saw Blackfoot. At the Capitol Theater. Nice. I saw them there too. That show blew. I was side stage, man. Me, me and Jackson Spires were drinking. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't win that contest. No, like, no. <laughs> no. 
holy shit. And he went on, like, I was like, I could barely stand. And he was playing the drums like a beast. I was like, how is he doing that? (laughs) I think a lot of people don't realize how heavy Blackfoot was live. Yeah. They, They were enormous sounding. And they... They they never took off the way they should. Like actually, Molly Hatchet surpassed them in popularity. But I thought Blackfoot was the best band of of that era. They really hit over in England. England. Oddly enough, yeah, yeah. It's funny. England England really caught on to the whole Southern rock thing, with one exception, which I never understood. They love Skinner. You know, they love the Outlaws. They love. Mention the Allman Brothers and they go, who? I know. Mm. And that's my all-time favorite band, as you, as you, like, as you could see. <laughs> They're the daddies, man. Absolutely. At the original lineup of the Allman Brothers, I still think was the best band of all time. The original lineup. The original yeah. six-man lineup. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. I'm going to look for something. Hang on. Uh, where did I put that? I'm just wondering. Okay, so I got this bootleg and it's Allman Brothers Acoustic Los Angeles, and it's June the 11th, 1992. Mm-hmm. This is so good. <laughs> you know, just who knows how it was recorded, you know, but I just listened to it. I was like, listen to this band. They're just so unbelievably, it's that, it's that uh, to quote Jimmy Page, it's that loosely tight thing. That you exactly, don't see. right. And that was with uh, Warren Haynes and Dickie Betts was still was still there at that time, right? Ninety two. Right. Yeah. I saw Greg play solo. I'd say within a year he had died after that, so it was very soon. He had his heart. He had his heart. Had you know he had the, you know that whatever thing in his chest. So he'd had his heart attack. Right, because he had he had a liver transplant. Yeah. And then he had a, I think, I think he had a pacemaker. pacemaker put in. Yeah. If, if, That's it. Yeah. He, had a pacemaker. he pretty much, he pretty much challenged death for a good 30 years. He, in his he, life. he did. He did. <laughs> yeah. You know, but uh, man, he was good. I absolutely loved. I've seen them so many times. There's at a the vocal Beacon influence. Oh yeah, definitely. I can't sing that way, but that's, you know, it inspires me without a right. doubt. Okay. So going back to Wasted, was there any plans for another album or that is that was strictly a one-off for you at that time? Uh, it became evident at the end of the tour, that same manager I mentioned earlier, he just mismanaged the thing into the ground and it became evident at the end of the tour that this was never going to survive. Um, so... You know, we finished we finished the tour. We had an amazing run with Iron Maiden playing the US, playing Canada. We did some shows in Eastern Europe. We played all over Europe with Status Quo. You know, the, the album did crack the Billboard Top 200. Video was played, all that sort of thing. But there was all this infighting going on amongst the principals. Johnny D and I, we were, you know, we were just higher guns. We did our best to just hang on. And all of a sudden, there was all this aggro uh, behind the scenes about Chapman. And what I found out later was Chapman was really questioning the managers, like, okay, what happened to this money? And oh, no, that doesn't sound right. Well, we need to talk about this. So the manager started whispering in Pete's ear, like, Chapman's not happy. He needs to go, blah, blah, blah. So we finished the tour in America. And, I mean, this is how sneaky it was. One of the last shows we did was Irvine Meadows in Los Angeles. 
And after that, Johnny and I were told, listen, can, you know, we'd like to stay in LA for like a week afterwards. Yeah, sure. Okay. But Paul left, Paul went home. We were like, God, why would Paul leave? Because they started auditioning guitar players as soon as oh, his wow. butt went out the door. Um, we saw Michelangelo came in. Um, I brought Red Red Beach to the table. Wow. Um, this is pre-winger. Gosh, there were some great ones. There were some great ones. And we eventually got this really, really young guy who uh, was named Eric Gammons, who was with Cold Sweat. Oh, yeah. Um, and we did about five or six, unfortunately for Eric, truly dismal club shows in that area. Like just, just that we did the Mason jar in Phoenix and all that. And you know, the old cliche about like five guys and a drunk Indian in the audience. We actually had that. I have, pictures. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it was, it was crazy. And so at the end of that, like five or six shows, you just knew the lunatics were running the asylum and we all kind of shook hands very quietly and said, yeah, you know, we'll be getting back together in like two or three months and we'll do some more shows. And me and Johnny were like, no, we won't. Mm. <laughs> that was it. Never heard from him again. Well, I guess Pete White wouldn't be the the, the guy you'd really pick to, to lead a band. I mean, you know what happened with Fastway? It was kind of a similar type of thing with, the, you know, that band also that he got involved in, pulled out at the last minute. And it, it probably. Pete, unfortunately, Pete, Pete suffered from being one of those guys that, his opinion was the same as the opinion of whoever was kind of the strongest personality in the room. Right. He was, I mean, it comes, it comes with alcoholism and drug abuse. He, he would just, you know, it, it was part of his everyday life. And, you know, you had to ride that, ride that ebb and flow. Otherwise, you know, you couldn't work with the guy. Right. I guess that's why he lasted so long with Mog, who had a very strong, from what I've heard, very strong personality. Yeah. Yeah. Phil. Phil is a leader. There's no question about it. You know, he knows, he knows how to do what he does. He knows how to keep the band going. I saw UFO just a couple of years ago and they, they were outstanding. You know, it was like, made me so happy because I've seen them over the decades. Yeah, me too. I've yeah. seen them in all different incarnations and me mediocrity, greatness, you know, and uh, yeah, it's ever since Vinnie Moore got into the band, it, it, it started to take a, uh, an upswing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, he 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 plays the Shanker stuff, you know, he, he really nods his head to Shanker because Vinny's a very different type of player, but he's uh he's very respectful of the Shanker and the and the Chapman material. Right. You know, so because funnily enough, I mean, I, I don't pick up side once again, I don't mind. I I don't get into that, you know, which was the better era. But a number of my favorite UFO albums are the Chapman albums. I said that last. I told I told yeah. Neil Carter that he was shocked. <laughs> no, Wild Dwelling of the Innocent. Wild Dwelling is my favorite. No Place to Run, right behind that. You know, I mean, there's some. Crazy I like Mechanics a lot. Also, all, all four of those albums post Shanker. I thought, in fact, I've always felt from cover to cover, I thought they were kind of stronger than some of the. Shanker albums were, you know, that, that's a sacrilege to say to Shanker aficionados. No, it's, it's, it's not that. You got to remember, too, that the Shanker era was the 70s. Right. And songwriting was a lot more kind of loose. It wasn't quite what is quite as compact. And, and, you know, sometimes they would just go off on some odd tangents. Right. I actually discovered UFO. I had, a, I had an aunt. God, I don't know how, how old I was, but I was really young. And I just 
I grew up in a household where the music was mostly kind of folk and lighter stuff like Dylan, Beatles, Simon Garfunkel, blah, blah, blah. But I started getting into rock and roll as a kid. And I had an aunt who just said, oh, he likes rock and roll. So she went to a record store and just like picked the most rock and roll looking album she could find. And one of them uh, was uh, an album called Flying. Oh, that's a very early UFO. Yeah, yeah. And I like that period, too. Yeah, it was space rock. Right, space exactly rock, yeah. 12 minute songs yep. and things like that. And I fell in love. I was like, all right, whoever this band is, they're my favorite band. And, you know, so I got to kind of ride that era. And then, of course, when you finally heard, you know, the live album, it was like, okay, these guys are the best. <laughs> <laughs> that early stuff was a trip, like stuff like Prince Kajuku, and they had these 20 minute yeah. jam songs, but it was good. And, and Mog's voice sounded exactly like what it became to know, you know was known for but he's another one i mean he's, he's definitely an influence because you know i mean no disrespect to them because i i hold him in such high regard but he doesn't have a big range no he sings in the same register all the time he just has a very cool sounding voice yeah he's not an acrobatic singer he doesn't have any like soul you know oh, oh, you don't hear him do that but there's something so listenable to what he does. And nobody sounds like him. Yeah. And, and he'll, he will come up with, he always managed to come up with some very cool lyrics. Oh, the lyrics are, are great. Especially that, again, the Chapman era, you know, Diesel in the Dust and songs like that. Yeah. And Diesel in the Dust is brilliant. What a great song. Yeah. I mean, this story of the, you know, like he, he was, he's a good storyteller inside his songs. Yeah. I went, you know, what was cool? Um, I can remember, being on the bus and wasted and finding out that that like UFO, their favorite bands to listen to when they were traveling were Bruce Springsteen and the Eagles. Oh yeah. <laughs> really? I, I, you know, I and, that. Yeah, yeah. That's part of, I think where Mog, like if you look at that storytelling, like diesel in the dust, that's a story Springsteen could have told, you know, about a truck driver, you know, who's bullying people and gets killed. Yeah, and the stories. There's another song on there all over you. Yeah. It's like a, a really depressing song about a, a prostitute, the song All Over You, that's on, on that same album. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the the way he phrases and rhymes and tells a story inside the song and, and still has that great hook that he sings all the verses, it, it's, it's genius. I always thought he's a genius songwriter. Profession of Violence is... Another great song. Oh, forget it. Yeah. Songs I've ever heard. Right. And yet has that dark edge to the lyric, you know? And I think he sings that beautifully. Yeah, no, he's he's one of a kind. There's, there's, there's only one Phil. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the Taiketo got off the ground how? Could you take us from the, the beginnings of how that came about? Well, after Wasted kind of ended kind of with a whimper, um, I just assumed, you know, they'd be beating my door down. You know, I was like, I toured all over. I knew a lot of people. And actually, I had some opportunities, one of which was was scuttled by Wasted's manager, which really pissed me off because I was supposed to be working with a band that was involved with Smallwood Taylor. Smallwood Taylor wanted to take me on. And, you know, they were they had everything going on at the time. But then things just kept falling through. Nothing really happened. So I sort of decided it was time to sort of take the bull by the horns. If I was going to get back in there, I was going to have to do it with my own group. I had met 
our drummer, Mike Arvini, by pure chance. Now, you're going to forgive me. There's going to be a lot of name dropping here. Um, I was still in Wasted. I was back from tour for a brief time. And I lived in Brooklyn, um, five, six blocks from Lemoore, actually. And one block away was another long-haired kid that eventually I was like, we kept seeing each other like, in the you know you going past each other like, who's that guy he has he only only two guys in the neighborhood with long hair and that guy was james lomenzo who is still one of my dearest friends today and so he gave me a ring and he said uh, i heard you're back yeah i said listen he says i'm in the studio and i'm doing this we're doing a drum demo for a guy who's wants to send this into audition for the new white snake uh, we're doing this cheap trick song with a lot of extra drums on it. I was like, oh, yeah, great. I love it. He goes, it's almost done. He goes, got to be honest with you. The singer's not really cutting it. Would you mind coming in and just knocking it out? I'm like, oh, yeah, it'd be loads of fun. Um, and I'm trying to remember who who all was involved on it. So James was playing bass. Mike Arbini was the drummer. Um, the guitar player was, was from Overkill, I'm pretty sure. Uh, it was all... Brooklyn boys, you know? And so I went in there and um, I sang it. You know, remember, I, out of all those guys, I'm the guy who just got off the world tour. White Lion hasn't happened yet. You know, Michael was still playing in cover bands. Uh, Overkill was was kicking it off, but they were still local. So we finished that and I'm coming out of there going, yeah, well, you know, it's what I do. Ha ha. And the drummer comes in and he goes, that was great. That was so good. I think you could do it better though. <laughs> you said what now? You know, and we became best friends ever since because I loved it. And I was like, all right, this guy, this guy cares. I saved his number. That's what I'm rolling around to. So when I started going, okay, I really got to do this on my own and have my own band. Uh, he was the first guy I called and he was into it right away. Um, you know, starting everything right from the ground up. Um, and it took us a little while to find Jimmy and Brooke. We had a few other guys kind of messing around, but we, we did something that later became a thing, but I never heard anybody doing this, but we just basically started Taiketo boot camp. We found a place in Jersey. Uh, it's not Neptune. I can't remember where it was, but anyway, we were able, we were able to live and rehearse in this place. It was actually a business that had gone under and the guy who owned it needed it. It was part of his, his bankruptcy agreement. He needed to have on-site security. But he just told us we could live there. No rent. You know, we didn't know why. And, but he had this massive space where it used to be a showroom and everything else. We turned all the little offices into bedrooms. We get up, we'd have coffee, have our, have our breakfast. Go down the down the stairs into the big room and had all our gear setups and we would just write and play like five hours a day, um, and that's I think why those if you listen to that first Taiketo album it's very cohesive, you know those songs sound very similar to one another because it was all done you know very a lot of hard work but it was all done in a in a relatively short space of time. And when you were writing these songs. What- was there a uh, a label that you were trying to pinpoint or you were just going to shop it to whoever would would sign it yeah we weren't we didn't have a label in mind uh we did have management in mind which was the guys from who ran Lamore 
um, loud and proud. They had at that point, White Lion had hit. You know, that I think they was weight number one. I think it was. Uh, you know, so they had that. They had them. They had Tora Tora, and they just signed. They had Overkill, and they just signed Eric Gales. Um, and we knew them because all of us had played Lamore one time or another. You know, so. Um, and that's another kind of weird circle that Michael was was in a cover band called Dreamer and I was in a cover band called Allied Forces and we played all the same clubs and, and went around. But, you know, Dreamer's guitar player was Vito Joe Brada. Brada. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, it was an easy phone call to call the loud and proud guys and say, hey, listen, we got this thing going on. They were big, you know, they were big fans of Mike and I and uh, they they picked it up right away. So. That really helped, and then they kind of aimed for for the record companies at that point. And we did the, we did a proper, we did it to a couple of shows where we had like, I'd say six seven labels were all there. You know, it was that time. New York was New York was hot. You know, Skid Row was happening. There were there were a lot of New York New Jersey bands. Everybody was kind of coming out out there to check things out. Yeah, the Cat Club and all those places. The Cat Club that more, was that course. was the Cat Club in the city. We were signed from the Cat Club. That was where Geffen signed. Well, there was that 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 Skid Row poster from way back in the day, and it was the guys, and then behind him had all the show bills, and and it had the Skid Row, uh, if it was a Cat Club show, and it, I think you guys were opening for him or something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we opened for him twice, and, and to that was, I think that, that was their idea. You know, I mean, I knew Dave, uh, and I knew Rachel, but they really extended themselves to us several times you know, to try and sort of get us a higher profile. So bless him for that. Yeah. So that album took off big. I mean, it, it seemed like it did at the time. There was a, there was a lot of buzz about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, if I had a dime for every time somebody said, how come we weren't bigger? Um, we came along a couple of years too late. Exactly. Yeah. As far as the, the temperature of everything else that was going on. If that album had been released in 1989, I think, you know, we'd have made a much bigger, bigger mark. We are without a doubt, you know, the kind of the ultimate underground band because we get mentioned with so many of our peers, Skid Row, Winger, Danger Danger, you know, all these guys. And like, those guys all had platinum records. We never had anything like that. We didn't come close to that. But we had the rep. Um Taiketo was just always, always a good live band. You know, it was bang for your buck. People walked out of there going, wow, okay, that was something. You know, we, we weren't forgettable. And that kept us going for years and years. It's what established our foothold in the UK. Geffen didn't want us going on, on tour in the UK. They wanted nothing to do with it. Ah, Europe's over. Just stay in America, you know, and all that. We're like, fuck that. <laughs> We've been wanting to go to Europe all our lives. It's right. the total opposite, right? It, it was actually... Yeah, and you know we opened for White Lion, and it was a, a massive tour, and we've been able to come back ever since because of that that start. I think the songwriting from that album is what really has carried it thirty plus years after the, after the fact. All those bands you mentioned, and and I'm I'm not asking you to comment it. It's my own personal opinion. I thought the Taiketo debut was better than than those bands, just from the <laughs> the fact Thank you very much. that the songwriting from beginning to end never let up there was there was no weak songs there were no cringeworthy songs there were no songs as a fan you said gee i wish they left those couple off 
So I, to me, I think it really has endeared for so many years just on the strength of of the songs on it. Thank you. Um, and that was due to, like I said, that boot camp. I mean, yeah, there were there were some crappy songs, but we got, you know, we're like, nope, get those out. We were able to have enough time. It's always like that with debut albums. You spend all your time on them. You know, it's when you it's when you get to really sort of hone your craft and you know, there's there's no reason to duck it. I mean, we were all aiming for that Bon Jovi territory, you know, and it was all like the idea was to write not living like a prayer again, but to write songs like that or like, um, you know, some of the stuff that was on on Hysteria that was all just massive arena rock fists in the air kind of songs. That's what we were out to do. You know, when we did the second album, we weren't thinking about as, that as strongly. We wanted to branch out with strength in numbers and, and kind of show some other sides and, and do some other things. But like I said, Don't Come Easy is very, very concentrated record, I think. Now, the second album came out uh, three or four years after that. Now, I, my, in my opinion, as a fan, I thought it was every bit as good as the first one. Um, but it wasn't met with the success, I guess, because of the difference of 1990 to 1994. Is that fair to say? Well, you know, we finished that album. I mean, we went right back into the studio to record that album. As soon as the tour was done, that album was finished uh, Christmas 92, I want to say. Maybe before that. God, it might have been Christmas 91. So it took two years for it to actually come out. Three. Three. Um, well, it was out in Japan so, first, right? For a year and then... Well, here's what happened. Um, and again, it's it's... To, to Graffin's credit and their detriment at the same time, we had everything done. Now, most people listening won't remember what I'm talking about, but we it had gone so far as that blank cassettes had been sent to radio stations for strength in numbers. So I, if anybody remembers how that was, that was their, their little teasers. It was like, it just said, you know, from Taiketo's forthcoming album, and there might be two songs on it and stuff like that. They went that far. The only thing that hadn't been done was the cover hadn't been decided yet, but the album was recorded, mixed, mastered, produced. Everything was done. They paid a lot of money. We we did it with Kevin Elson, who was, you know, just one of the best producers you could ever work with. Uh, we did it in some great studios in in L.A. and, and San Francisco, and we got the news. We got the news. It it was right after it was done. We got the news like Geffen's decided not to put it out. Really? They just invested almost $100,000 in this thing. And some guy in the accounting department went, nah, you know, because everything was starting to change. If you had long hair, you know, if you were handsome, if you're good looking and dressed up and had long hair, people were kind of going, oh, no, that's not us anymore. Um, to their credit, I've never heard of this happening before. Geffen gave us the master recordings and said, if you can get someone else to release this, Go with God. I've never heard that. Wow. No, no. And so we were we were able to get to Music for Nations. Unfortunately, in America, the reason it wasn't any bigger is because we ended up going with a label called CMC that was just shit. Yeah. You know, very badly run by people who didn't know what they were doing, but talked a good game, and they disappeared within a year. But Music for Nations, tremendous label, great people, and our, our Strength in Numbers tour in Europe was twice as big as anything we did for Don't Come Easy. I mean, we toured for like two years behind that thing. 
And the second album, I remember at the time, was hard to get because it was only came out in Japan originally. Uh, no, it was Japan, but then, like I said, America, CMC, but... That was like a year later. It, it, was after, it was after the fact, though, right? I mean, I could be wrong. You would know better than me, but I, I recall that Japan put it out first, and then after that... If they put it out first, it, we were only talking by, like, month. Oh, okay. Right, okay, yeah, right. Well, I remember seeing you guys, uh, I guess around that time, you, you played a lot of Birchill shows, you know, and... Yeah, yeah, that was kind of our home away from home for a while. After this album is done, the touring that went with it was, I'm, I'm con- assuming, is less than what you would would normally have anticipated if it was a few years before that. Quite the opposite. Strength in numbers, we toured our socks off. It was grueling. Really? We we did, remember I told you, we, we had lived together. We, like I said, we did a couple of strange things. Um, going back to the first album, Things had already started. They were starting to pull away from bands like this, us early. When we released Wings as a single, I mean, we absolutely believed in that song as a single. And at the time, 1991, you did not release a single without a video. And Geffen went, nah, don't want to spend any more money on a video. And we went, yeah. So we took everything we had left over from our publishing deal, which was 30 grand, and we paid for the Wings video. So it was all like that. And we did everything with, with strength and numbers. We toured it as hard as we could for, like I said, a couple of years. I looked at some of our, our old tour T-shirts. And I'm looking at days five, six in a row. I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> you know? Was that in America or was that? No, all Germany. And, okay. and Yeah, that's why I don't recollect it because I, I, re- I don't remember you guys being around. That's, but I don't realize how much you toured in Europe. America turned its back on us in a big way. And we were like, all right, well, we got to go where they want to hear us play. Yeah. Cause I only remember, like I said, Birch Hill and like it was a place rock the house in Wallington, New Jersey. I saw you guys at. Yeah. And that was just because obviously we, you know, it was a local gig. So, yeah. you know, we didn't go too far, but yeah, we weren't touring anywhere else in the States. Okay. We worked it. Uh, for, I mean, the album came out in 94 and I left the band, I guess the end of 95. Well, I wanted to ask you that. Why? What was that? And I was talking with Tom earlier, and we were saying I, I don't know if we ever heard the story, but what what was what led to you leaving the band? There were a lot of things going on. Um, watching watching the band that you've built up, you know, like I said, particularly in America, you you, you go and thirty people come to a gig. It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. It wasn't like that in Europe, but it was really hard. I mean, it was. You know, we were touring by the skin of our teeth. We were paying for everything. So, you know, it was there was no frills. Yeah, we had a tour bus, but it didn't have air conditioning. You know, that would cost extra. Um, And it just between that, I got so sick of the music business that I was just like, you know, I just don't want to do this anymore. It really just came down to that. And I didn't do anything with music for four years. Okay, so basically wore you out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's part of, you know, it might be a little bit of that kind of selfish dreamer in me, but I just, you know, I, I couldn't watch it die. And I kind of, I just, I just thought if you worked hard enough, you deserved better and we weren't getting it. Yeah. <laughs> so I just, I just said enough. Well, the, the, the band carried on, obviously. I mean, I actually saw um, the band in, I guess it was 96 with Steve Ogieri, um when the Shine album came out at, again at Birchill. 
and you said you were just kind of out of music at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, actually, Steve was my, my idea. Oh, really? He was a good friend, and he was working in Staten Island at a club called the Red Spot. We used to hang out there and drink all the time. And Tall Stories, to me, that that's one of the best albums of that whole era. Yeah. That, that first Tall Stories album is just tremendous. Like you were saying, the songwriting is just so way up there. There, there were two, two albums that came out at that time from New York bands that never got the credit they deserve. Tall Stories mm-hmm. and another band called Diving for Pearls. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that album. I know who they are, but I don't know the record. Oh, boy, that's, yeah. I have to ask my wife about that. I bet she has it. She's into that, so she might have the it. The first Diving for Pearls. You got. You have to hear that. It's tremendous. That's a good recommendation. I'll check that out. Yeah, super classy album. I just told the guys, I said, man, you know, Steve isn't in, you know, Tall Stories has ended. I said, Steve's just working at a bar. Get him. You know, because that guy can sing, you know, and, you know, off it went. He and Brooke hit it off like a house on fire. So now you got back into a, a point in your career where you started to do your own solo material. Well, during that period of just, I was working, you know, driving forklifts and, and working in factories and things like that. I never stopped writing music. Um, and the beauty of that was I no longer had, I no longer, no longer had a specific reason to write it or a specific audience to write it for. I just started writing whatever came into my mind and I'm like a sponge. I like all kinds of stuff. You know, I, I, I like folk music from around the world and all, you know, kinds of weird shit. And so I just wrote. And at some point or another, Mike Arbini and I started talking again, because when I left, he wasn't very happy with me. So we just kind of parted ways. Um, and it was one of those. So what are you doing? Eh, you know, working here, doing this, doing that. So, But, you know, I have actually been writing songs and I made these little uh, home demos. And uh, he came He came by and he's like, let me hear what you're doing. And to be honest, Mike has always been probably my biggest supporter, you know, somewhere between him and my mom. Um, yeah. And he listened to a bunch of songs. He was like, this is an album, dude. He said, you should be doing this. So really, he pushed. And I'm like, ah, you know, I don't want to get back into this shit. And it was just, we went with, you know, a small label because, again, you know, that's who was interested. And uh, so we did the first the first record with Soldiers and Sailors on Riverside. And I just love that album because there's no set force to it. It's just I think it has a very, very 70s vibe to it as far as the types of songs. Songs are allowed to breathe, do what they want. You know, it's recorded kind of kind of raw. It's not very polished sounding. Um, and yeah, and I just I love the way that one came out. And similar to Flesh and Blood that you had done with uh, Mark Mangold had that 70s, I thought Al had Petrelli. that 70s, and Al Petrelli had that 70s type. I did that right after I left Taiketo. I had a couple of possibilities come up that I might have stayed in the music business, and then I just kind of backed out. But long story how I got hooked up with Mark Mangold, but he he just sent me some stuff, and he said they had another singer, and the record company just didn't like his voice. Here we go again. Um, and he said, would you be interested in just coming in and doing these songs? You know, even though, you know, you didn't write anything. I was like, and I just loved it because it's dirty, dirty rock and blues. Some of it goes into that bad company territory and Paul Rogers, certainly in my top three vocalists ever. 
And I was like, yeah, okay, let's do that. And it was fun because I didn't, I wasn't in charge of anything. I didn't have to think. It was just, here's the song, learn it, get in there with, you know, me and Mark working it out, working it out. We did 13 songs in like, I don't know, four days, something like that. And uh, it's, it's still, I love listening to that record for that reason. It has nothing to do that I'm on it. I just think, you know, he and Al and some of the other guys, they wrote some great material. And, uh, you know, we, we just recently got to re-release it uh, on a French label with um, two bonus tracks. And one, one new one that Mark and I did together. It was a lot of fun. He's an interesting uh, guy, Mangle. We had had him on the podcast last, I think, early early last year, and uh, yeah, he's he's been involved with a lot of big things behind the scenes, even things you didn't know he was involved with. Yeah, and he's one of the the, the purveyors of that pomp rock sound, you know, that came out of the U.S. in like that seventy nine eighty period. Didn't he write or co write? If I could turn back time with Cher, for share, yes, he did. He yeah, did some so, Michael Bolton yeah. stuff too. Yeah, he did some Michael Bolton stuff. Yes. So yeah. Uh, oh, what was the other one? Because um, he told us stuff that we didn't even know at the. At he the, did one that Def Leppard ended up doing, I think. Oh really? Uh, yeah, it was originally on Paul Rogers' album, The Law. No, oh. I have that album. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a great album. Yeah, it is. That's yeah. a great album that went absolutely nowhere. It, yeah. it was also yeah. it just. I gotta look it up now. <laughs> Let's. See. For for a little ride. Oh, for a little ride. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that wasn't Def Leppard. He didn't do. Did Def Benny Leppard Mardonis do that? That's right. Him and Benny Mardonis. I'm looking right at. Okay. Okay. So no, I I did make a mistake. The 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 um, Def Leppard song was actually written by Phil Collin, and it's on the Law album. And it's called "Miss You in a Heartbeat." Okay, so um, you, had, you had it the other way around. Yeah, you were close. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So yeah, I mean, like, I like say, Mark. Yeah, Mark's been involved in a lot of stuff. I want to jump ahead, actually, and we'll come back to you know more Taiketo stuff. But I want to jump ahead to, to, to 2020. Um, you did the uh, Snake Oil and Harmony album with Dan Reed. Um, mm-hmm. I, I actually that's one of my favorites. I was telling Tom the other day. I mean, I, every time I listen to that album, and I listen to it quite often, I, I just love it. I love all the songs on it. Is that something? How did well? First of all, how did that come about? And is it something that might continue? Well, uh, Dan and I met um, at Download one year. I think it was 2014. Dan Reed Network and Taiketa were on the same stage. And, of course, I'd heard his name for years and years. You know, and I, in, in many, if, if, any, if Taiketa was frustrated, the Dan Reed Network was really frustrated because they were this close. I mean, they were opening up for the Stones. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was happening. Um, so we had a lot in common and we just got to chatting and, and I, I've been doing a lot, getting my confidence up as far as being a solo acoustic player. And I've been doing more acoustic shows, but I really wanted to do, I prefer to work with others rather than just me. You know, I, I like the give and take. I like not, I like the unpredictable, you know, it's a little unpredictable. I like that. Um, so I approached a number of my singer friends and just said, wouldn't it be great to do an acoustic tour, like two of us together, a little storytelling, a little, you know, this this wasn't kind of a common thing yet, but it was being done by Lyle Lovett and John Hyatt, who are two of my favorite songwriters on planet Earth. And I thought, this would be cool to do with, with rock guys, you know? 
And everybody I talk to, you get the same, you know, Eric Martin, Kip Winger, Jeff Scott Soto. Dude, I love that idea. Have your people call my people. And, it's like, and it just it falls apart. You know, you just hear anything. I mentioned it to Dan at Download. And I said, I think it would be a cool idea. And it seems like you and I would sing well together. And he just gets out his diary and goes, I'm free next April. <laughs> okay. So we toured. And we did two tours. And it was great because there was no ego involved, you know, as it was never the same set twice. Dan was brilliant for, you know, people would shout out something and he'd just play it. I can't do that. I need, I need sheets. You know, I got to look at, I got to look at words and music, but we did enough stuff where he, he made it very clear early on. He's like, anything you want to jump in on, make shit up, you know, give me some harmonies on something. It doesn't matter if it's what's on the album, have fun. And so same courtesy went back to him and we really had a thing going that, that was kind of special. And so people started saying, well, are you going to you gonna do your own songs? Why don't you write something? So we did a test run. We, we did one. We wrote a song together called where the water goes and we started playing that live and the reaction was pretty strong. So we're like, all right, I guess we're going to do an album. So it kind of it kind of came at a, at a difficult time for me. Dan really took the helm on that album. Uh, we recorded it in Prague, which is where he lives, and you know that's no hardship. Yeah. <laughs> Go and be there for a while. Um, but of course, it it came out all right. So I was in London, March of 2020. I'd done three days of press, both for that album and for my solo album, Myths, Legends, and Lies, which had come out just a little before that. And I hadn't done a press junket since the 90s, where it was like all day long, you're at a hotel and press is coming in and you're talking and then you move on to the next guy. And on the fourth day of that was supposed to be the first day of our show to support that record, which was in London. And the phone rings at like seven in the morning and it's Dan. And he says, listen, he goes, I'm sorry to tell you this. He goes, but I think you need to get home. He said they're they're shutting down flights in and out of England, and so that was it. We never got to tour. I I got a flight out that night, and two days later, flights between England and Spain were suspended. So if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have gotten home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the worst thing about that album was the timing, you know, and when it got released because 2020. Story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, do you think there'll ever be another uh, another Snake Oil and Harmony album? I don't know, and if it is, I don't know if it'll be Dan and I. You know, it might be two other people. Dan is, is so neck deep now in other non-musical projects. Yeah. He's, he's got a, an independent film he's doing. Um, his, he's, you know, as happened with all of us during, during COVID, you know, during, particularly during the lockdown period, we all started looking around for something else to do. And Dan started painting again and it's really taken off for him. You know, he's got his own, big painting studio now and hmm. ships all over the world and it's it's amazing stuff wow well now I, I saw you in 2016 you i guess i mean maybe i don't know why you were here but you, you came back home to new jersey uh you played an acoustic show a solo one at uh mexicali in uh Tina, oh you were at mexicali I was oh there. my god yep i love that place yeah and uh you, you think you, you would you ever come back and and come to america again and come back to yeah, back home no, and play I, know what um the whole, whole house concert thing has sort of become a, a staple i really started to push that and i was shocked 
last year at how many offers I got for the States. I never really considered it because, of course, you know, it's, you know, 1500 bucks to fly there and back. But notch up enough shows. So last year I did a bunch in, you know, in the Northeast, some house concerts. So I'm going to do the same thing um, at the end of this year, September, October. So I've got like four or five house concerts already booked, like Maine and Philly and um, uh, Baltimore. So I'm definitely going to land a few Jersey shows that won't be private shows. That'll be public shows. So that's definitely going to happen. I would say first, first week, first two weeks of October. Nice. We got to see Taiketo, the two of us, and uh, a place called American Beauty in the city in Manhattan. Yeah. Kind of the big homecoming back in, was it? That was a great show. Tremendous show. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was, it was a little rough. You know, it was, the club was a bit, a bit difficult for sound, but it was just great to have the, the people that we had because, you know, it was mostly all people that have been with us from the start. Yeah. You know? That's what made that show, I thought. Like, the crowd was, like, it, it reminded me of, like, a, a 1988 type of show. Yeah. Everybody was yeah. singing the lyrics to all the songs, and you guys were on fire. That was a great lineup that you had at the, at the time, too. Greg Smith, I think, was the bass player. Yes, that's right. Yeah, no, Greg's awesome. Well, we're doing – that lineup is playing its final shows on the Monsters of Rock cruise. Yeah, Mark was telling me before yeah, we went Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, obviously, a few months back, um, there was the announcement, you know, Michael is now kind of getting out of music. Um, and, you know, Chris, uh, I guess same thing, you know, dedicating himself back to his family. I guess um, So you guys taught, you know, brought two new guys into the band. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I mean, the best thing about that whole thing, I mean, I can't even tell you emotionally how I'm going to feel on those last two shows. It's too abstract for me right now. But the best thing about all of it is there was absolutely no drama connected to it at all. You know, the two guys, we talked about it and I said, listen, whenever this shit's over and we get back out, I said, one of the things that's always difficult for Taiketo is because of their they're both Chris and Michael, their job commitments, their life commitments. We're really only able to do about two weeks worth of touring out of a year. And maybe just the occasional festival here and there. Yeah. We really need to open that up. I mean, reach suffered for that. Reach is my favorite Taiketo album. I think it's unbelievably strong. Oh yeah. And I think it would have gone a lot further if we had been able to tour, you know, four weeks, maybe five. We're lucky. And the guys went and thought about it, and they both came back and said, you know, you're right, Taiketo needs this, but I can't do it. So I, I said, and I was perfectly okay with saying, okay, then I'm going to pack it in, you know, and that's fine. That decision is okay, too. Um, and both Michael and Chris are like, why? Why would you pack it in? I said, without you guys? You know, I could never think of playing in Taiketo without Michael. It makes no sense. And they really pushed and said, look, if you're singing them and they're the songs people want to hear, you should still be out there. So we'll see. We'll see how the audience feels about it. You know, Um, it's nice, though, because my life has these lovely circles to it. And so, you know, Johnny D's coming in on drums. Yeah. From the wasted days. He hasn't played played drums with me standing in front of him in 30 something years. Yeah. Um, And Harry Scott Elliott is someone that we know through, you know, working with, with Kane and, you know, we got to know him and 
he and Chris really hit it off. So it's nice because Chris has been helping Harry get a handle on, you know, how we do things, the various pedal switches, all that stuff that I don't know anything about. And, um, Johnny, who, you know, spends most of his time playing some hardcore metal with Doro, he, um, he's been able to just sit and chat with Michael about, you know, how he does things and all that. So there's this great kind of familial atmosphere going on around this. So we're doing the two shows at the Monster Rock Cruise, heading back to England for two days off and then straight into rehearsals with the new guys. <laughs> oh, wow. And you guys got a big big tour with uh, FM and Dare, right, all around Europe there? Yeah, we're doing 12 shows in the UK. And then Taiketo's going on to do... Uh, we're playing France, Belgium, Germany, and Holland after that on our own. Wow, nice. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, a few questions about Reach, which is an album that I loved. And I, I thought it's, it seemed like your songwriting really got rejuvenated. In fact, this has my favorite uh, Taiketo song, Circle the Wagons, on that. Mm. Oh, brilliant. Um, wh- what, where did those songs come? Because like, these songs, were some of them I thought were on the, the caliber of the, of the debut album. That's how strong they were. Thank you. I agree with you. I feel the same way. We had enough time. You know, um, it was a weird way to do it, of course, because like everybody else, we're all writing from different countries, you know, in our home studios. But I wasn't sure if that was going to work. I, I much prefer, you know, woodshedding in a group together, but it just wasn't possible with everybody living in all different places. So I wasn't sure if it was going to work. But the first song that I wrote that I thought, I think Taiketo could do this, you know, it feels strong was a song called The Run. And to me, that was, you know, when I start something, it's always very acoustic based. And it's understood that, you know, don't play like I play, you know, pick up the electric guitar. That's how it, was, it always was with Brooke. You know, I would play something nice and jangly on acoustic. And then I'd say, take it, you know, make it rock, do, do your thing. And so that was this kind of gauntlet with Chris. I sent him The Run. And, uh, Michael threw some drums on it from home and the demo that Chris sent me back was so perfect. Like everything I could have imagined, like how that song was supposed to be. So I was just like, okay, this has got to happen now. And so we really put nose to the grindstone and some of the songs like that started with me, circle the wagons did, but then other songs started with Chris and Michael working on some cool rhythm structures and chord structures together. And, sending stuff to me like tearing tearing down the sky was one where you know they had the music kind of worked out and i had to figure out lyrics to put on top of it and that's the first time we'd ever really done anything like that in taiketo it's it's a, I, I thought the songwriting was great and i'm hoping there will be a, a another album at some point under the taiketo moniker yeah if, if this tour goes well and you know, we all start to gel again as a band, then that's the next step is to, you know, start writing some stuff or start working with different writers. I mean, I, I honestly, like me personally, like I, I, what you said a minute ago, how Chris was working with Harry, right. To kind of get the guitar sounds down. And I always thought that, you know, Chris got that maybe, and I don't know, was there anything like when Brooke kind of left, was there, cause I, I thought Chris had, you know, Brooks tone and everything for the songs, like right there. Exactly. So it's encouraging to hear that. There was no connection between Brooke and Chris. I mean, Brooke 
Brooke had, you know, very much his own life to lead at that time. He was doing, he was living in Las Vegas and was doing a whole bunch of stuff. But Chris, um, well, first of all, was, was very much in awe of Brooke. You know, that they're two, in many ways, different style guitar players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Chris is potentially the most, the best all-round guitarist I've ever met. And, and I've met some really good ones. Um, but he seems to be able to, he has that gift of being able to do what is needed rather than what makes him look good, you know, and uh, what works for the song, what works because he was in a band called Furion that was quite a bit heavier than what we were doing. So for him to step back from that and, you know, start looking at some of the stuff we did, um, you know, letting go is one of my favorite Taiketo songs. And he, he wrote all the music to that and just sent it to me. Yeah. You know, and it just, I had, I had the lyrics and the melody after two listens. I'm like, I know exactly where this song's going. Hmm. Um, Chris is a very hard worker and that's, that's why. And he, he's, he's very much OCD. So if he's like going to learn Brooke stuff, he knows every note, every nuance, every slide, you know? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> No, because I, I mean, I saw you guys at M3 in uh, in Columbia, Maryland, of course, the M3 festival. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I was just, I was blown away. You know, I I, I mean, just to hear him, you know, the, the, the solos, everything was like spot on. Yeah, he got, we, I think after one of the first shows we did with him, some stuff went on YouTube and I got a an email from Brooke going, yeah, the kids got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a very nice does. endorsement. Yeah. Well, he he did the the Pride album too, wasn't he on on Pride? Yeah, that, well, that's where I first met. Him. Okay, was Pride. I love that album. <laughs> yeah, and that's another album that just flew under the radar. It didn't really in yeah. the states. It didn't get any any notice at all. Yeah, well, Matt, the singer on that album, is really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, the, the singer on that that is real good. I have a couple of oddball questions for you. The song uh, "Walk Away." Why was it left off the debut? We had, I think, two extra songs at that time. We didn't have any, any more than that. Um, so I can't remember. Was was Walk Away? Are you looking at the, was that a Japanese single? I have this CD single that yeah, back in the day was very much in demand because it was yeah. really hard to get a hold of. Well, you know, you always had to have one extra song for Japan. Right. And back for then, those who yeah. are Don't know. We still do. Yeah, the but same that, you know what everybody does now? They do either an acoustic version or an edited version. But back then, 30 years ago. Yeah, we got tired of spending thousands of dollars at studio time just so freaking Japan could have their own song. Right, right. But that's what everybody did. But back 30 years ago, you had to give them a, a studio track. Yeah. Yeah. The reason for that is because, crazy as it sounds, um, you know, Japan wants to release it on their own label. It's more expensive for a Japanese fan to buy a Japanese product. That's right. Than it is for him to get an import from Britain mm-hmm. or America. So the only enticement they have is if you put an extra track on it. Um. So I'm. That's it. Was it was Walk Away and a song called Wait Forever, and one of those two was on the Japanese version. But yeah, don't come easy. We wanted to keep it to. 10 songs, you know, it was, it was the right length. It was very much, you know, slam bang all the way through. And as Taiketo was always very much a democracy and, and those two songs never got quite the higher rating in our camp 
that, you know, the songs that made the album did. And my other question, you were in a project called Burning Kingdom, which a lot of people don't seem to know about. What what was that all about? It was a little bit, the style was a little bit out of, out of the lane of what you normally do. Um, what was that all yeah. about? Well, you know, I've lived in Spain now for 13 years. And as you know, as you do, you start to know the musical community of where you live. And there's a lot of great musicians and a lot of rock and roll in Spain. I live in the very far South, not so much rock and roll here, but Madrid, Barcelona, Wow, all up that way. Big rock stuff. A lot, of, a lot of heavy stuff, too. Burning Kingdom was, I got a phone call from a guy who, a dear friend who's unfortunately no longer with us, who um, he booked Taiketo several times uh, for shows up in the north. And he said, listen, I have this, this great guitar player. His name is Manuel Seoane. Basically, he's doing, it's a solo album. It's his band. It's the second one they've done. They had a singer in place who I won't mention. Um, and they had, they were paying him to sing and do this, do the songs in English. Um, and he took their money and he went on vacation. Mm. <laughs> they never heard from him. And he said, this album is supposed to be finished and there's a release date pen and said, there's no lyrics. Would you consider like going up there and meeting with Manuel and maybe trying to finish this album for him? I'd never tried anything like that. Where I mean, the music was recorded, finished, you know, so I didn't have a lot of wiggle room to say, oh, it'd be so much nicer if this went to A minor here, you know, too late, it's all done. But Manuel is such a sweetheart and he is an incredibly talented player and one of the nicest people I've met. So I just said, you know, it's, it's not what I would want to do, but all right, let's do it. So, you know, some of the songs on there, I'm not happy with the production on it. That's 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 the worst of it for me. But um, there are a few songs off there that came out really well. And uh, again, he's he's a stellar player. And we did a couple of gigs. It was fun. I'd like to have done more. So this was basically your stab at being a hired gun. Yeah, well, I've done it a few times. You know, where, where I've, not for whole albums, but right. you know, for your guest appearances and stuff. But yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly what I was. Because there's like about half a dozen guys, I won't mention their names, you probably know who they are, that make a career out of doing this. They're on 20 yeah. different, they don't have an allegiance to any of these bands, but they'll sing on a whole record, they'll do some tour dates, but they're basically hired guns. Yeah, or, you know, you get involved in projects. I can see one right by your right by your elbow there, the from the insides. You know? <laughs> exactly. Good eye. That's, I mean, that's where, you know, Frontiers puts a bunch of different guys together from different things. And it's a great idea, except now they've done it a thousand fucking times. And people- well, that's it. They they've gilded the lily too much yeah. with it. And even guys like me have gotten bored with it. Yeah, and you know you can only you can only have so many ex member of hmm. albums. It's like, yeah. come on, right. you know they're not selling the music anymore. So yeah, the, I've done I've done a fair bit of stuff, hired gun stuff. Just yeah, very rarely for an entire album. There was I, I can't think any album, but there was something that Richie Zito was part of that you were on. Yeah, uh, that was his solo album. Um, he just had a bunch of songs that had been laying around, and he knew an awful lot of good people to work with. So yeah, I got to do two songs with him for okay. that. Which- Avalon? Avalon, Avalon, right? Avalon, Avalon. Yeah. yeah, that was actually a really good album that had some real good songs on it. 
that Richie Kotzen's on that? Right, I mean, Kotzen is on it. You're on it. Yeah, that was actually a, a high. That was when it was still good, that type of stuff. But over the last decade or so, it's it's gotten so played out and watered down that that concept of, you know. Yeah, and people are you know, people are making a lot of these albums in their home studios now. That too. And they sound okay, but it doesn't have to. They're passable, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, that's one of the, again, for better or for worse, that's one of the things about Taiketo too is that, we don't want to, you know, we take our, our audience's support and faith very seriously. So, you know, budgets aren't what they used to be. You know, I, I can't remember. I think Don't Come Easy costs like 150, 175 grand to make. Um, and we didn't have that kind of budget for reach, but every penny of it went into making the record, not into paying everybody's rent and, you know, whatever else. So, we have an incredibly strong sounding record because we were able to do it at Rockfield Studios, just like in the good old days. Proper live-in, true blue recording studio, you know, one one of the best in the world. No, that's a big thing to be able to to get everybody in the studio like that nowadays. Because you said it doesn't happen, you know, everybody's out on their own and recording their parts and emailing each other and everything. Yeah, exactly. And you can tell. I mean, I I don't put it down because that's how we have to work, but you can feel it these kind of cut and splice records and I've done quite a few of them. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. I think I've uh, run out of questions. For you. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Danny, I mean, Tom and I really appreciate it. It was great, you know, great stories, great catching up with you. Um, we wish you the best of luck with the, the final shows with Michael and Chris, you know, coming up uh, at the end of the month and beginning of next month. Um, and then, or well, actually April into May. Right. And then, uh, best of luck on the the tour with FM and Dare, and uh, you know I, I really hope you know we get to see either if it's just you or you know if the band ever can make it to America again. That would be awesome. Yeah, I, I would like to get the band back to the states somehow. You know, but the only way I can see it happening is if we get a slot on a couple of festivals mm, and right. a few weeks around it. You know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, hopefully. I've, get to run into you guys. Like I said, at sometime in October, I mean, it's, you know, I haven't booked the flights yet, but it's pretty much going to happen. And I'm talking to some agents over there, the same people that are booking like Mr. Big, uh, sorry, booking Eric Martin and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, Anthony from Tora Tora and, and Tony Harnell and all that. So I'll get something up in that area. Okay. I see, I see, a, I see a Mexical or a debonair musical coming up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Mike can handle Jersey. That's for sure. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll get something in Jersey. Okay, cool. And before I let you do, I go, I have one more question for you since you know, Dan Reed, how did Dan Reed not, especially in that slam album, it had everything at that time that I thought was going to blow that band huge. How did, how did they hit and miss? It's a painful story, but he tells it. Um, he got, he's right in the middle of the, I think it was the tour with the stones. If it wasn't, it was somebody else like Bon Jovi or something. Bon Jovi, yeah. Oh, so maybe it's a Bon Jovi tour. He, he got so sick of everybody talking about how cute he was and the hair and the lips and nobody wanted to talk about music. Hmm. And so he's in the middle of a tour, a massive tour. He goes back to his hotel room, shaves his head and this is his story. So he said, I didn't realize how impactful such a thing could be. Oh, absolutely. A few nights later, 
we're playing the same tour. Robert Plant comes backstage and he says, hello, shakes my hand. He looks at my head and goes, oh, I've heard about that. <laughs> and he said, that's when I knew we were in trouble. Wow. You know, he just didn't think. He, didn't he, think. he actually sandbagged his whole career. Completely. <laughs> wow. Completely. Because when that album came out, it, it had everything. It had the that funk element, which became very big. It had the, you know, it had the the band that had uh, Afro-Americans in it. It had Americans. It had, I think, a Chinese uh, Oriental player in it, yep. too. And that was starting to break also because you had Living Color. You had Tony McAlpine, Greg Howe. That element, it, it had everything. It had the great-looking front man. It had the great songs. And it was seemed to be a band that, at that point, couldn't miss. And then they just went away. What else they had that was kind of key? This is digressing for a minute, but um, you remember uh, Jewel? Sure. Yeah. Um, the first time most of us ever heard of Jewel was because Tom Cruise started telling everybody how much he loved this artist, Jewel. And then next thing you knew, you know, Dan Reed had the same thing. There were people completely outside of music that were like famous, that were like, Dan Reed, I love this band. Guys like Rod Laver. Tennis star. The tennis guy. <laughs> yeah, he was like massive fan. That once that starts happening, dude, that's that's a that's just a major fire waiting to happen. All you gotta do, all you gotta do is blow on it a little. Right. You know? <laughs> right. So that's yeah, that's where they were. They were they were right there. And you know, Dan's got amazing stories to tell from all of that. Good, you know, both both. I'm glad I asked you that because it, it, it don't I wanted it when you were talking about them earlier. I wanted to ask you about that, and it, it dawned on me at the end because that was one band I thought had everything for that that time right there, and it just yeah. it didn't happen. But now I know why. It comes down to one haircut. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, <laughs> terrifying, isn't it? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess that would be I'm about of, it. I'm then. out of questions now, <laughs> um, officially. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, best of luck on everything coming up. Like I said, and and like I said, hopefully we get to uh, get to see you guys or see you at least in person uh, at the end of the year. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, if it happens, please, you know, make sure to come over. Oh, if it happens, we'll find you. Definitely. Good. Yeah, it'd be great to meet you in person again. Great. Excellent. Thanks very much. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Danny. Um, I'm all up. For anybody's into the Almond Brothers, all right in my book. <laughs> and <go>. Grand Funk. <laughs> <laughs> there yeah. you go. All right. All right, guys. Take care. Pretty much. Take care. Bye bye. Bye, Danny. Have a good one. You too.
It's time.